Welcome to uh, tonight's lecture. My name is Kevin Featherstone, and I'm the uh, director of the European Institute here at the London School of Economics. Perhaps, first of all, I should say well done for being able to get a seat here uh, this evening. That I noticed there was a long line of people waiting to come and hear our speaker tonight, so uh, we've done our best. We've chosen one of the largest lecture theatres that the school uh, has. Let me, before I forget, also mention, though, that uh, the lecture, like most of our public events, uh, will be recorded, and you can then down, download a podcast probably uh, within the next few days. So you'll be able to uh, share the podcast uh, with others. You can also share tonight's discussion and events uh, by, used by uh, using Twitter and the hashtag. I think the hashtag is uh, not behind me, but the, the hashtag will be hashtag LSE Brexit, uh, I believe. Uh, so we look forward to receiving your comments as the uh, event proceeds. Tonight's lecture is jointly organized by the European Institute and the Institute for Public Affairs here at the school. And it's part of an LSE program on Brexit. And of course, the program on Brexit seeks to cover the political, the economic, the social issues that are raised by the UK's decision uh, to leave the European uh, Union. Now tonight, of course, we're looking at the future of Europe's financial centres after Brexit, and we're particularly conscious in the UK of the importance of the City of London and indeed of the financial services sector to the UK uh, economy. And the statistics are easy to cite. Out of every eight pounds paid in taxes in the UK in 2016, one pound came from the financial services sector. The UK's financial services sector contributed over £120 billion to the economy in 2015, representing 7.2% of gross value added in the UK. And our financial services sector employs over 1.1 million people, many of them in the more senior uh, positions, of course, LSE graduates. So we are very sensitive to the impacts on the financial services uh, sector. As we know, the public debate over Brexit has indeed uh, highlighted a number of sensitive issues. Will UK banks continue to be able to have passporting rights in the rest of the European Union? Will activity shift from London to other European centres or indeed other parts of the world, e.g. Uh, New York? And in these debates, Luxembourg is, of course, a prominent player. There are signs already that it's benefiting from the prospects of Brexit, particularly in private banking. Citigroup has announced that it is setting up a new base in Luxembourg for its EU clients. JP Morgan is also expanding there. And the Bank of Singapore recently picked Luxembourg for its European expansion. So Luxembourg is already an international hub for private banking for both the EU and non-EU customers. And of course it's one of eight centres 
bidding to welcome the European Banking Authority as it is obliged to move from London uh, in the context of uh, Brexit. Of course, our speaker tonight is at the very centre of these uh, debates. Pierre Gromegna is the finance minister of Luxembourg and has been since uh, December 2013. He has also wide international experience, having previously been a career diplomat. He has served on many international boards, and I'm very pleased to note that he has a personal connection with the London School of Economics in that his daughter uh, graduated here from here a few years ago. Now, Pierre has agreed to speak for about 35 minutes. That should mean there's plenty of time for you to ask questions uh, afterwards. So, with a reminder for you to switch off your mobile phones, but uh, to be available to tweet uh, with the appropriate hashtag and uh, to be ready to watch the podcast uh, in a few days' time, uh, with all of that build-up, can you please join me in welcoming our speaker this evening, the Finance Minister of Luxembourg, Pierre Mouregna. Well, Excellencies, ladies and gentlemen, it's a great uh, honor and privilege uh, to be invited in this prestigious university to speak uh, on Europe and in particular on uh, the issue of Brexit and the impact it can have and will have on Europe in general and on the financial centers of Europe uh, in particular. First, I'd like to thank uh, Kevin Featherstone for his nice words and for giving uh, us the opportunity to have this lecture. And thank you for coming so numerously uh, at this uh, event. Thanks also, naturally, to London School of Economics, to the uh, uh, European Institute and, uh, and the IPA. I think that a university is the right spot to try to speak uh, about a subject in a factual manner especially at a time where the subject has become extremely political, politicized, overly politicized. And so I'm going to try to speak about what are facts, what are the consequences of Brexit, what are the objectives pursued in a way that should not be polemic, but should open your eyes, our eyes, on what's at stake for Europe as a whole, for the UK in particular, for the EU27 uh, on the other side. First of all, I have to start by saying European, uh, Europeans have to just accept the decision that the United Kingdom citizens have made on the 23rd of June 2016 and uh, accept the negative vote that has been cast. We can deplore it, but we have to respect democracy. The British people have been asked twice uh, in history if they wanted to stay in the European Union. The first time was in 1975. <coughs> Sorry. And, and at that time, two-thirds 
answered yes. In 2016, 52% answered no. So that's quite a major shift. I must say, and some uh, people in the room who have followed me for some years now, that from the first day I heard that a referendum would be organized in the United Kingdom about membership of the European Union, I was extremely worried from day one because I had one very simple thing on my mind, which is the following. How do you expect to have a positive answer to that question if for 40 years Europe is made the scapegoat of all the problems that exist in the United Kingdom? By the way, this tendency exists in many countries, which can be exemplified in very vague terms. A minister comes home from Brussels and he's being told, did you accept this directive which is not good for your country? And he answers, yes, I was against it, but the majority imposed it. Now, if you say that every time something is not 100% to the advantage of your country, you must not be surprised that if you asked if you want to stay in that club, you go out. Had we heard how important and good the European single market is before the referendum, maybe quite a few people would have changed their mind. But this is the way it is. We have to respect uh, the will uh, of uh, the electorate, now the British government obviously, but I think we as outside uh, countries and fellow members of the European Union have to do the same. What does that mean for the EU27 countries? I think we must be neither complacent, the EU27, neither try to punish the United Kingdom. So it's in between these two limits that we must define our position. What do I mean by not being complacent? It's very simple. When there is a divorce, and this is a divorce, the countries that remain in the family must stick together, and this has worked pretty well up to now. But you also stick together because you want to defend this family also in the future. And the deal that will hopefully come out uh, with the United Kingdom after the exit must be a deal that is defendable also towards the 27 countries. In other words, the deal cannot be more attractive than being inside the European Union. You cannot be in and out at the same time. You cannot have a cake and eat it. You cannot have a menu à la carte. Otherwise, well, otherwise, many other countries are going to say, well, there's, there's quite a few things I don't like so much in the European Union. Let's go out like the UK has done, and I keep what I like and throw away what I don't. So we cannot be complacent also for that reason. The second thing is, we must not punish the United Kingdom because we must respect the decision that was taken by the people. So what do I mean by, why do I say that? Not only because I like your country quite a lot, not only because you are the mother of nearly all the sports in the world from football to rugby to alpine skiing, you invented the British alpine skiing. Yes, it's not the Swiss. It's the British who went to the mountains in Switzerland and invented alpine skiing, yes. 
<laughs> not only for that, not only because you gave to the world the greatest rock and roll band in the world, the Rolling Stones, who are still performing very well in the middle of their 70s, not for those reasons, but for a very simple reason, and that is, that is for economic and political reasons much better to have a deal that is good for you and good for us. No deal would be bad for both. And Brexit is bad news for the European Union, but it's very bad news for the United Kingdom. So we both need a deal which will mitigate, which will mitigate the damages that will unfold after the exit. At the same time, I want to say very clearly, we just need to de-dramatize the situation. Yes, something like that has never happened. Now, such an elaborated, integrated international organization as the EU does not exist anywhere else in the world, so yes, there's no precedent. We must be creative. But that doesn't mean that there are no solutions. And so, I really think we need to become factual and discuss what is at stake, go down into the details, and avoid megaphone diplomacy. Because that's what we have seen the whole time, since June 23rd or June 24th of last year. Me megaphone diplomacy on both sides. And the megaphone diplomacy makes it difficult for both sides. My introduction becomes longer, but I think it's important in the context. If you say, the British need to pay, to continue to pay something in the budget. And you throw a number out there. It's nearly sure that you cannot agree. Once a number is out, everybody is going to benchmark the result compared to that number. And you will have a winner and a loser by definition, if it's lower or higher. So that's exactly the things that you have to avoid. The number that will come out one day will be the consequence of a whole deal that you can explain to people. But if you put the number first, you put the cart in front of the horse. Now, I know the EU itself has said we need to agree first on three issues. I'm going to come back to that. But still, let's avoid megaphone diplomacy. Let's de-dramatize. And de-dramatize also means another thing. From our side, it means respecting the decision of the people of the United Kingdom, which also means not playing with the idea, well, eventually they're not going to work out, eventually there's other scenarios or whatever. No, we shouldn't do that. On the other hand, we should encourage, also on the British side, not to try to nurture the feeling in the 27 remaining countries that it's a good idea to leave. So also that, also that contributes to reduce the tensions and that's what we really need, reduce the tensions. And remember that when Brexit happened and also the result of the American elections happened, quite a few analysts said we're going to see here a kind of domino effect that many other countries are going to leave Europe. And we're going to see that Europe is going to become, Europe as European Union, far less attractive. Now, the elections of the year 2017 in the Netherlands, in France, and in Germany 
have proven exactly the contrary. Because it's those party, parties who wanted to strengthen the European Union that had good results, positive results. And in fact, the global appreciation of Europe in the polls is today quite a lot higher than it was one and a half year ago. So I'm going, uh, in, in my introductory speech here, dwell on five issues. The first one is, what is the current situation of the European Union, mostly economically? The second is going to be, what is the state of the Brexit negotiations? The third, and that will be the core part of my presentation, will be, what are the options for the future relationship? Because that's a topic that's very rarely addressed, and I wanted really to focus on that, because this is about solutions, about facts. Uh, in other words, you could call that part, do we have a toolbox to fix this? My fourth will be, what drives firms to relocate in the context of Brexit? And you spoke a little bit about that uh, uh, in your introduction, Kevin. And fifth, What's the future of the EU architecture? I will be rather brief on that last part because it probably would carry us very far uh, compared to the topic uh, of uh, my uh, speech. Now, how is Europe doing? Economically, we've had quite an upswing which was unexpected in its size. Uh, until one year, one and a half year ago, growth was less than 1% in the Eurozone and uh, people were quite depressed. Today, growth in the Eurozone and in Europe as a whole is slightly above 2%, uh, slightly even higher than in the United States. We haven't seen that for a quite long time. We've had growth uh, now for 17 quarters in a row, also that is a record, and maybe more important because that, that was very much highlighted uh, in the past years, the problem countries, or we should call them the program countries in Europe, have come out quite well. The program countries are those who received help in the years of crisis, namely uh, Ireland, Portugal, Spain, to a certain extent, Cyprus, and obviously Greece. Now, all these countries today look much better off. Greece. I can say a few words about it, maybe if there, there's questions, but even in Greece, it looks as if they're going to make it. And in all the other countries, our programs of the Eurogroup have worked well. And these countries have recovered quite well. So we were able to overcome the teenage crisis of the Stability and Growth Pact, the teenage crisis uh, of the Euro, and now growth is also back, which makes it obviously easier. Now, the economy in, in the United Kingdom has outperformed uh, the economies of the Eurozone over the last 10 years. Growth was always higher in the United Kingdom, and I, I remember very well George Osborne often mentioning that to us in the ECOFIN, saying, well, you have many problems in the Eurogroup. We are happy and lucky not to have the Euro, and we are performing much better. Let's be realistic. Since uh, the decision of the Brexit, there has been a certain slowdown uh, of the uh, UK economy, and I'm not saying that because I'm happy about it, but it's just facts. Unemployment is up, although from a very low level compared 
to the average of the European Union. And last but not least, obviously, as you know, the pound has lost uh, up to now 14% uh, compared to the situation prior to uh, Brexit. So I think this should ring a bell uh, in, in many people's uh, uh, mind that uh, the situation has really changed here. Now, I'm not going to open the debate about the fact if a devaluation of the currency is a good or a bad thing. My opinion is this is, by definition, a very bad thing. But there's many economists who disagree with that. But obviously, uh, it cannot be interpreted as a strength. A strong currency reflects a strong economy. So, it's clear that we are now in a situation where the outlook for the British economy is not as good as it was. And I would just like to quote the OECD that says, the major risk for the economy of the United Kingdom is the uncertainty surrounding the exit process from the European Union. Higher uncertainty could hamper domestic and foreign investment more than projected. But swift progress in negotiations and an outcome that retains strong trade linkages with the European Union would lead to better outcomes than projected. I think that's a very good summary of the situation made by the OECD. So what is the situation, and that's the second part of my uh, presentation, what is the state of the Brexit negotiations? Now, the EU27 have agreed a mandate uh, for the Commission uh, and um, has appointed a chief negotiator in the person of Michel Barnier, former commissioner, French nationality, and uh, he uh, is negotiating uh, with uh, David Davis uh, on your side, on the British side. And the EU has uh, decided that it wants to do this negotiation in two phases. A first phase where three issues need to be discussed. I have already alluded to one, which, which is uh, a budget contribution uh, in the future for some time by your United Kingdom. The, the second is the problems of the border of Northern Ireland. And the third one is the issue uh, of the citizens of the European Union, both in the UK and the UK citizens uh, in, in uh, the European Union 27. There have been five rounds of discussion uh, which uh, have not produced uh, phenomenal results. That's a British understatement. Uh, let me say maybe uh, first on citizens that uh, some progress has been uh, registered, but there's still some issues about administrative procedures and the role of the European Court of uh, Justice, uh, and these need to be tackled. Let me tell you that seen from Luxembourg, we really think that this is the very first item that should be solved. We must reassure our citizens in your country and your citizens in our countries that they are there because they had a right to be there and that should be guaranteed in the future. I cannot understand why this cannot be done. And I can assure you of one thing that all the UK citizens are welcome in Luxembourg today and in the future. Northern Ireland, I think that topic seems, in terms of principle, to, to, to be uh, close to a solution. 
it's probably the practical implementation that might be more difficult, how to avoid a hard border between Northern Ireland and Ireland. But uh, I'm quite optimistic on this one for the moment. And then third, the financial settlement or the necessary contribution of the United Kingdom uh, to the EU budget for some time. Here is a very interesting case of de-dramatization. The first, first thing that needs to be explained to the UK citizens is this has nothing to do with punishment, not at all. I will give you an example. Let's suppose we go out for, the 20, uh, to, uh, to di for dinner uh, at 28. And we order, because we're very hungry, in a good mood, the company is very pleasant, and we order excellent wine, and we have a five-course menu that we order all together. Unfortunately, after the third course, one of the guests gets up and says, I am tired of your company, and by the way, I have eaten enough, I'm now leaving. Fair enough. Not only the Dutch guy is going to say, yes, but you pay for the five courses. <laughs> that one is in addition to my joke, it came spontaneously. <laughs> yes, yes. We'll delete it from the podcast. <laughs> you understand what I mean. You are in the same boat for some time. We have a multi a year financial framework of seven years in the European Union, you are committed for seven years, you cannot just say, hey, I'm leaving. I think it's a very simple explanation, but it tells more than many words and many calculations why you have a responsibility until a certain point. I have no clue, and I don't think it's really important to know if that goes until 2021 or 2020 or whatever, and exactly what amount it is. Because this amount will also depend on what the situation will be after the Brexit. Because that has also a value. So it's not something that is uh, so easy to determine uh, mathematically. So that's what needs to be explained here in the country. And we must explain in our countries that we do this not because we want to punish the British, but because we, we have what you could call sunset clauses that at the end things... Uh, have to, to be winded down, and so it is. So again, de-dramatize here. So in a nutshell, what I hope is that uh, as soon as possible, maybe by the December European Council, we will be able to say we have now reached sufficient progress on these three items so that we can start the discussion on the future relationship between the United Kingdom and uh, Europe. There was a um, summit uh, last week, which uh, was a, an intermediary summit that decided that there was progress, but not sufficient yet to get to this second phase. Now, what are the options uh, uh, for the future relationship? Um, which I wanted to make a little bit the core of my presentation. I see many possibilities, but I would summarize them in five different options. Going from very integrated solutions to more loose solutions. The first one I would like uh, to highlight 
is what I call the Norwegian solution, which uh, is the one uh, that exists in the European economic area, which is a treaty that has been negotiated um, and signed uh, with uh, finally three countries, Norway, Iceland, and Liechtenstein. And by the way, as a young diplomat in the 90s, I uh, was heading a working group which negotiated that back in 1991. And this EA agreement uh, entered into force in 1993. And the goal here is to more or less guarantee the passporting rights. Now, for those who haven't heard that expression, which is a kind of acronym today, it means the full and automatic access to the EU single market. Basically, selling your goods and services and financial services to the EU citizens all over the place with no hurdles, that would be and is possible in the Norwegian model. Now, you might say, well, then we have the solution. Let's just do it like the Norwegians. But it has obviously some consequences if you would do the Norwegian model because the Norwegians accept to take over all the EU legislation, and you can say, fair enough, we do that too, but they also accept to do that for the future. So from day one, when the United Kingdom will exit, this Norwegian model would pose no problem because our legislations are the same for the single market. But over time, there will be differences. So if the UK would go this route, obviously it would mean that they would have, I mean the government and the country would have to accept rules that are made up by others and have to be applied to your country. I think politically this is rather difficult. The other one is uh, obviously also the, the role of the courts in this field. There's a, a special EEA court, a European Economic Area Court, which could inspire us, but nevertheless uh, I think there is politically something which is rather difficult to solve here. Um, one must say that the United Kingdom uh, was uh, together with Norway and other countries before entering the EU in what was called the EFTA, European Free Trade Area. So I think there's some knowledge about how all this uh, could work. But uh, obviously uh, this is uh, politically, in my sense, uh, difficult. But the passporting rights here in, in this solution are quite well uh, guaranteed, I must say. It was very difficult to negotiate all that, but uh, in the end uh, it worked and um, it also applies to financial services, which is key in uh, this whole uh, negotiation. And in financial services you must know that there are um, at least nine such important uh, financial services directives which are now being applied uh, together. Uh, this uh, being said, um, the question that you can ask yourself uh, is, uh, if this goes too far, what is the second option? Well, the second option would be what I would call the Swiss model. And uh, what do I mean by that? Well, the Swiss model is uh, a kind of uh, a specific relationship that Switzerland and the EU have built together 
which uh, boils down to roughly 120 bilateral agreements. 120 bilateral agreements, which cover a lot of ground, uh, which allow for uh, quite a few of the goals that uh, uh, we envisage here, but doesn't go as far as giving passporting rights. Now, the agreement with Switzerland also covers, and I think that's very important, the four freedoms. Freedom uh, of um, movement of goods, services, financial services, and people. And uh, obviously, this is also, in fact, in the EEA, EEA agreement, and I didn't mention it, also the case, there is a free movement of people, uh, which is another issue that's difficult for the UK. But in the Swiss model, we have this issue of free movement of people. That's a difficulty on the one hand. On the other hand, the Swiss ha have quite a lot of guarantees on quite a few issues. But in financial services, they do not have the passport. They do not have the passport, which is different from the Norwegian solution. But this can be solved. It can be solved by doing one very simple thing, and that is opening a subsidiary uh, inside the EU. So uh, the Swiss have given us a blueprint of how to solve the issue. You do not need to go as far as the Norwegian solution and accept in future foreign law, but you can organize the framework of your bilateral relations, and if you're so keen to be active in the EU single market, you open a subsidiary. And then you can build um, your customership inside that EU single market. The third solution uh, that, in fact, maybe very few people have thought about is, is a little bit provocative, but... Uh, is uh, what came to my mind, is that what I call the Turkish solution. I don't know if somebody has ever thought of that. Maybe it will go viral now after the speech. <laughs> and that is that since 1963, we have the European Union, which at the time was called the European Community, has a customs union with Turkey. Now, what is a customs union? A customs union means that you have the same customs tariffs inside that union and that you have common tariffs outside that territory. So also for imports outside of EU and Turkey, we have the same tariffs. Now... I mention this because there has been some discussion uh, in the United Kingdom in the last couple of months whether the exit means exit of single market but also exit of the customs union. And whilst in the very beginning uh, I heard a lot that, yes, we have to walk out, uh, I've heard a little bit of thinking that this might be worthwhile looking into because it obviously simplifies quite a lot uh, the procedures if you have a custom Union. Uh, that doesn't mean that you have exactly the same standards in environment and other matters, but at least for the basic tariffs you have the same. Now I'm talking about 
standards uh, in the Swiss case, um, the, the one I mentioned as second possibility, there's a lot of bilateral arrangements between Switzerland and Europe because of all these standards. So the Turkish uh, model is, is something that could be very interesting because it also reduces quite a lot procedures, administrative procedures, and fosters trade. The fourth model is uh, the, what I would call the Canadian model, uh, after the comprehensive economic and trade agreement that was concluded by the EU with Canada called CETA. This is the most advanced free trade agreement ever signed, very recently, uh, uh, which entered also into force a couple of weeks ago, uh, which covers quite a lot of things, integrates environmental rules, some social standards between Canada and the European Union, but still doesn't give you the passport for goods and services. So it is more than a traditional free trade agreement, but it obviously does not ensure that you can continue to sell your goods and services freely. And uh, uh, it obviously covers very little uh, in financial services. And what I mentioned in the Turkish solution for customs union doesn't solve at all the issues of financial services, just to be clear on that side. So the Canadian uh, solution uh, is obviously not comprehensive enough, but at least indicates a road if there is no other solution found. Fifth and last uh, possibility is just Basically, if there is no agreement at all with the United uh, Kingdom, uh, we, will have, we will not fall to zero. We will fall to the World Trade Organization rules, which is, in a sense, you could say a kind of minimum standard where you can do trade according to certain regulations and most of all respect uh, the rule that you should not discriminate countries amongst uh, uh, themselves. Uh, in other terms, if you give a preferential treatment to one country, you have to give it to all the countries who uh, have subscribed to the WTO. It is, in fact, a solution by default. Now, uh, clearly, uh, this uh, is not very satisfying this last solution for the United Kingdom because basically it would be to, uh, to, to realize that no progress can be made compared to the minimum world uh, standard. So uh, in conclusion, what can we say uh, as a summary on these five options? These five options go from the best possible case in terms of passporting, which is economic European economic area like Norway, where, where you have two major uh, drawbacks, uh, which is you have to accept a future legislation to which you're not part of. Second, you have to accept free movement of people, down to the minimalist solution. Uh, let me maybe also say a last thing about uh, the second solution, the Swiss one, which I think can, should be looked into, and which is the following. In the Swiss solution, one of the major issues is you have also the free movement of people, and a referendum in Switzerland two years ago also rejected the free movement of people into Switzerland, which was part of the bilateral deal with the EU. 
but the Swiss and the EU were able to find a solution that is acceptable for both sides. So there is hope that uh, uh, solutions can be found if we are creative. And being creative probably means that in the five options I've listed, we can take elements from each other and combine it. And in fact, Theresa May in her Florence speech said that we need to be creative. And I really think that none of the five options that I've mentioned can by itself alone give us a solution. But I think I have indicated here a sufficient number of possibilities, a kind of toolbox from which we could inspire ourselves and which could help us uh, find uh, a solution. Last but not least, because time is of the essence and the sequencing of events is important, um, I really think that we will need transition periods. Now, transition periods have always been negotiated by the European Union in all the deals that have been done with all the countries around the world, so this is not an innovation. Um, in the guidelines of April 29, the possibility of transition periods is mentioned, and uh, I think this is going to help us to devise a, a set of rules that uh, would be uh, the final agreement that we could have uh, between the European Union and uh, the United Kingdom. So the clock is ticking. We have little time left until the 29th of March, which is the deadline. As we all know, uh, two years is given for the negotiation in Article 50 of the EU-Lisbon Treaty, but at the same time, with transition periods, we can allow ourselves a little bit more leeway and time to negotiate these complicated matters. Now, my fourth point is what drives firms to relocate uh, uh, away from uh, the United Kingdom in the context of Brexit. I think I can be very short because the answer is very simple in a way. Companies do not like uncertainty and unpredictability. Now, all the things I have described, the five options and the, the megaphone diplomacy are all not very welcome by companies because they have customers. And we saw a few companies today here in London. They tell us, you know, we cannot wait. We cannot wait because our customers are telling us what's going to happen tomorrow, and I want a safe solution for tomorrow. So, obviously, uh, the pressure on companies is, is probably much higher than what governments anticipate. Now, Luxembourg is obviously happy uh, when uh, potential uh, institutions or, or firms established here in the United Kingdom are knocking on our doors. Uh, but I've uh, always said we want to have a cooperative approach with London as a financial center. W what do I mean by that? I mean by that, that, and that allows me to a little bit describe the financial center of Luxembourg for you, compared to the financial center of London. London is the largest financial place in the world. Luxembourg is the second largest in the Eurozone. Uh, we're in the top 15. In certain areas, we're number two in the world, like, for example, for investment funds. We're second only to the United States. Uh, in fact, in this field, we cooperate quite a lot 
with London, in private banking, we're number one in the Eurozone. So in certain areas, Luxembourg is a very meaningful center. And if I look at uh, the investment fund industry, in fact, here we work hand in hand with the United Kingdom. I've been coming here in the last four years, at least twice, and holding conferences here on the investment funds, and I would have a room with a thousand people here because the fund managers sit here in London, the administration, the risk manager, and a few other functions are in Luxembourg. So London and Luxembourg work hand in hand. And we must make sure that we can do that also tomorrow. It's in the best interest of London as it is of Luxembourg. Our financial center represents 25% of our GDP. So in terms of proportion, it is much more important uh, than uh, even uh, it is the case uh, for the UK. Uh, as a small country like ours obviously has to specialize, and we decided to do that uh, many uh, years Ago. So what has happened is that quite a few banks, you have mentioned them, American banks, have decided or to come to Luxembourg or to strengthen their presence in Luxembourg. They're mostly welcomed. Quite a few, in fact, most of the top ten insurance companies have decided the same. That has maybe not been seen as much, uh, and we're very pleased about that. Um, private equity firms also have chosen Luxembourg. Well, they are all present here in London, but they need tomorrow a presence, a substance uh, in Luxembourg. And uh, so uh, also there, Luxembourg is part of the solution. But when you really think of it, we are part of the solution. This resembles what the Swiss banks are doing. This resembles what Chinese banks are doing. Chinese banks uh, have chosen Luxembourg as their hub to deploy their activities all over Europe. We have the seven largest Chinese banks in Luxembourg. So you see there are models of how you can be outside and inside at the same time. Obviously, you have to organize it in a different way from what uh, you used to do. Uh, and uh, access to market is really key. What surprised me most in the whole discussion was fintech companies based here in, in London at level 39, who came to see us in Luxembourg, very young startups who haven't even finished to develop their applications or their products, who tell us we want to move to Luxembourg. And I, I said, well, we're very happy about that. Obviously, we have created the Luxembourg House of FinTech, and we're happy you're mostly welcome there. But why are you so much in a hurry to leave? And they would say, well, as soon as we, re we are ready, we need to be able to reach out to the 550 million consumers of the EU single market. That's where you realize, especially in the financial services world, how important access is. So, uh, in a nutshell, uh, this is much more of an urgent matter than many people think. So, what I hear often is we have a deadline of March 2019, some transition periods, this is on the top of our mind, yes, that's maybe the political analysis, but the economic analysis of uh, financial actors is much faster. They need to act much more quickly. And again, we want to be part of the solution uh, here and, 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 and de-dramatize also here the solution. And let me be very clear, if these 
banks, insurance, as I mentioned, fund managers come to Luxembourg. It's not because we do regulatory arbitrage. The rules that we are applying and that actors have to comply with are exactly the same in all the EU 28. Now, we are probably uh, better in listening to the needs of the customers. We're probably better in listening to them in English because uh, we speak many languages. And you can file uh, in English, which is also quite rare in most countries. So we have a kind of good customer service, but the rules are the same. So uh, what we can guarantee is when you are in Luxembourg, you have the same framework of regulation, and at the same time you feel uh, welcome and at home because we're very business friendly, but pay attention, substance matters today. It matters not only in terms of uh, regulation, uh, in terms of compliance with the EU directive, it also matters for taxation. And uh, uh, as the tax landscape has evolved quite a lot in, in the recent past with the OECD initiative of BEPS, substance becomes even more important uh, in, in this whole discussion. Now, uh, last point, uh, what is the future uh, architecture of Europe? I think those of you who follow Europe must have noticed that in the recent past, in the last couple of weeks, we've had quite a few uh, politicians who came out with rather positive and refreshing speeches uh, that encourage Europe to go for more integration. Uh, I think of the speech of uh, uh, President uh, Macron on the one hand. I also think of the speech of the President of the EU Commission, Juncker. And uh, the common denominator is that there is a window of opportunity here for Europe to go um, uh, towards a stronger uh, integration uh, where it matters. Uh, President Macron has suggested that we should do democratic conventions to bring Europe closer to the citizens. I can only subscribe to that. And we need also to tell people that we care about their main concerns. So some topics can only be resolved at EU level. I think of digital single market, for example. Uh, management of migration flows, security issues, defense issues can probably only be solved best at the level of 27 or 28. Let me also mention defense as one very important area where the cooperation with the UK needs to be very deep also in the future, whatever the, the, the result. But we need to be closer to citizens, to their needs, and then uh, Europe will be more attractive. Because let's not be blinded by what happened in the last year there are still lots of nationalist movements out there. We saw that also in Germany in the last elections. Uh, and let's not think that we have won the hearts of all Europeans. Uh, we still have a long way to go. And uh, let's also not forgive that people don't want Europe everywhere in every field. Let's not forget that we should limit Europe on those topics where Europe can do better than when we act alone. And a recent example uh, where the European Commission proposes to transfer some uh, supervision rights from national authorities to European authorities proves my point here. 
Um, by analogy, the Commission says we should give the European supervision agencies more power, as we have done it with the banking union, which is a success. Now, in the banking union, we had all the problems of the 2008 crisis, which we have all suffered from, where the deregulation was such that there was the mess that we all know. So we had to do something, and we could only do it together. And that's what happened. But in this period of financial turmoil, the investment fund industry was very resilient. No major problems. So there you have to say, why fix something that isn't broken? And that's a typical example where also citizens, at least if they know this topic, would say, then let's have the principle of subsidiarity and let's not involve Europe if it's not absolutely necessary. In conclusion, I think that where Europe needs to go is in a kind of combination of more action in certain fields and respecting the diversity of the member countries. This is a difficult uh, act of balance. But at a time where the European Union, 28 countries today, tomorrow 27, is losing eco uh, economic weight in terms of wealth, in terms of people compared to the world population. It's only a united Europe that can make us more relevant. And if you look at the British people's decision to exit in that context, it obviously looks quite counterintuitive. To be alone Ranger in a globalized world is quite a challenge. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for that presentation, which was uh, broad and very clear indeed. I'm going to ask just one question, and then I'm going to open it up to the uh, audience. Uh, very nicely, you outlined uh, five different options for... Uh, the UK post-Brexit. And I noticed of those five options, three of them would not involve uh, passporting rights, uh, the Turkish option, the Canadian option, and no deal. Uh, I wonder when you think in terms of uh, the position of the future of the Luxembourg economy, wouldn't it be logical for someone in your position to advocate, to welcome no deal, Canada or Turkey as the model. It means more jobs for Luxembourg. And if the British are being uh, so obsessed with sovereignty, uh, etc., let them be on the fringe. Luxembourg can gain in terms of the jobs. Very good question. And uh, I'm glad I did not touch upon that subject in my speech because uh, it would not have gotten the necessary uh, attention because you, you give me an opportunity to underline something which I had in my notes but then I wanted to shorten it a little bit. It's the following. I think that it is key for Europe and Europe I intend with the United Kingdom that the number one financial center in the world remains in Europe. And in order to achieve that, we must make sure that we harness the city of London 
to Europe, to the continent. By doing so, we make sure that London can continue to perform well. If we do not manage to do that for whatever reasons, because someone to punish London or worse, something, and there are some countries who think that way, that the weaker London is, the more we will get a chunk of the pie. Yes. It's for me a very short-term reasoning. Um, my guess is that in many areas we might be able, with no deal, to weaken London. But it's not the European financial centres who are going to benefit from it. It's going to be others outside the European Union, and what we're going to see is that we're going to see London drift away or the island drift away into the Atlantic, if you follow uh, me geographically. So, in other terms, I find that a balanced uh, final agreement with the UK, and specifically for financial services, is in the interest of Europe itself. Okay. I'm going to just ask one further question, and uh, this can have a brief uh, answer. The British Prime Minister, Theresa May, in Florence, uh, when talking about the divorce bill, as it were, the Britain's budget contribution, uh, offered $20 billion. And uh, we saw last week uh, President Macron indicating that that was not even half of what we should uh, propose. But by the same logic, if Britain, during a two-year transition period, or whatever, three-year transition period, continued to pay at the current rate, that would get you to a situation where Britain was paying something of the order of 40 or 50 uh, billion euros. Now, you're a finance minister, and ultimately, you're going to be asked to say yes or no. Is it yes? Well, I hope I have proved in my speech that I can say more than yes or no. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> um, I'm going to surprise you. I think that, uh, that in this European endeavor, in this EU project, there's much more than numbers. And interestingly, you focus on numbers again because it's so easy. <laughs> what is the value of having access to the EU single market? Can you put a figure on that? I cannot. Uh, when I recall what these uh, fintech companies tell me, they seem to indicate that that's the, the biggest value of all. That's maybe exaggerated. But I can look at it even a little bit uh, with a wider scope because I get that question in a different way in other countries in another, in another topic. I, I, I gave a conference in in Bonn, in Germany, in February, and someone, and you'll see it's really linked to exactly what you said, said, we are tired in Germany to be the highest net payer of the European Union. You're really tired of that. When are you going to change that? And I said to that nice German fellow, I said, uh, yes, if you have a very narrow view of what uh, the benefits of Europe is, you can look at it that way. And then I said to him, what is the value of the EU single market for the German car industry? And then because he, he was like shaking his head and I said, what is the value uh, for Germany to be back 
in the international diplomacy through the European Union, what's the value of that? That has no price. This is like what is the value of your reputation. And that's why my answer to, to your very valid question is money is really not what's the most important here. Okay. Thank you. Let's have uh, some questions. There's a gentleman uh, up here in the white shirt, please. Could you simply say who you are and then ask your question, please? And we'll take two or three together. Hello. I'm Richard. I work in a big bank working on Brexit planning. Uh, and your name? Richard Allen. My question is, I think this is about the only forum I could ask this question and people would understand it, especially with a finance minister. If, if there's a solution which does have tariffs on goods and or services, the tariffs go to the governments of the re, re, where the services are received or the goods are destined, whereas the, it's companies or their customers that are paying it. So there's a temptation for finance ministers <laughs> on both sides of the negotiation to be quite tempted to have a tariff-based solution because it could plug some of the shortage in their budgets. And my, my question then is, do you, where do you think the balance is between the finance ministers in Europe and Britain? Um, how many are, have that thinking? And versus the bigger macroeconomic view that we're all better by just doing more trade together and we get a bigger pie. Okay, thanks, Richard. Let's take some more questions. There's a gentleman in the very middle. Then we'll come downstairs. Thank you. I'm uh, Simon. I study economics here at LSE. Um, it seems like a lot of people are saying that the ideal solution would be uh, a hard Brexit publicly, but actually a soft Brexit. And I'm curious what that would look like uh, in the context of your five solutions. Okay, good, thanks. Um, and the gentleman over here. Yeah, Tom we'll Harris. I'm, I'm a financial journalist and I've uh, been covering this stuff. just wanted to ask, um, Britain already is not in the Schengen Agreement. We're not in the Eurozone, and long may that remain the case, uh, depending on certain people's point of view. We're already, um, to some extent, not a full-on member of the EU. So it's not like we're moving from being like a gold member of a gym to completely giving up on going to the, do a workout every day. Instead, it's more like being a gold member where you just use the weights, but you can't use the pool or the sauna. Um, it's, but, but there's this multi-level of membership already to some extent. I think people didn't exclude that it's just like a binary shift from darkness to light or vice versa rather than the other way around. We, we, so with that point of view, take the Swiss option. If we, if we have to uh, create, so British firms have to create subsidiaries to get access to, to the single market, um, that's a cost to the companies and for doing that. But is there, have you ever weighed up the, the, the relative cost of companies paying to be a member of this, what amounts to a giant club, versus the British taxpayer in general? Because we, we pay net contributions, that to some extent gets us membership of this club. If, what's the difference really between that and the cost being directly borne by, say, shareholders of British companies and having to create a subsidiary? Is, is there any, I don't know if there's any study being done, but is there any way of weighing up the, the different costs of doing this? Okay, thank you. So possibly the first and the third question are somehow similar. That's um, who pays tariffs and uh, the, the benefits of being inside the single market? 
Yes. Um, now, just uh, one thing on the first question on tariffs. Tariffs have become rather low uh, all over the place, and specifically also for Europe. So the money that you get is, is quite limited compared to other revenues. And second, um, in the EU, uh, a large part of these tariffs go directly to the EU. So it's one of the direct resources of the EU. So it's not necessarily, uh, to a large extent, money that comes into national uh, budgets. And that's because we have a common market. So it's old things. <clears throat> Today, the major problem is not the tariffs, it's the non-trade barriers, the non-tariff barriers. <coughs> Sorry. Uh, multi-layer of Europe. Yes, it exists already. Uh, there's especially two major uh, sh uh, topics, uh, issues that uh, function in a flexible way. The, the, the most notable one is the euro. Nineteen countries out of 28 have the euro. Nine do not have it. Let me also remark, by the way, that when John Osborne, George Osborne mentioned this 18 months ago, so three or four months before the referendum, he insisted a lot, saying, and I want to tell you that we will never take the euro. Well, fair enough. Nobody has really uh, asked or called for it. So it was, in fact, putting something in the limelight or the topic, presenting it in such a way which was not the issue at stake. Nobody was envisaging to force the United Kingdom in, by any means to take the euro. But so we have the euro. That's one major issue which is uh, organized um, with only 19 countries. Then we have the Schengen Agreement. Uh, which is the passport-free Europe for people, to which, interestingly, Norway is, for example, a, a member, and Switzerland is a member. Interesting. Switzerland, which is not part of the European Union, is part of the passport-free Europe for travel, for traveling. How interesting, because it gives us a clear indication that there, where there's a will, there's a way. That's why I really think that the Swiss solution would deserve a lot of attention because it also has grown historically, and one could inspire ourselves, both the 27 and, and, and the, the British government, uh, how, how to do that. Um, what's the cost, again, the cost of Europe, the cost of not being in Europe? Well, studies are extremely difficult to do. Uh, I had in my notes here that one private, uh, very renowned uh, company has done a study that the UK might lose up to 40% the UK financial centre, up to 40% of its revenues. I mean, you can calculate with talking tens and tens of billions of pounds. So the numbers are really huge. And these direct numbers compare very well with the numbers of contributing to the uh, EU uh, budget. Um, and then we could add an additional uh, layer. Uh, take defense. Uh, defense where the United Kingdom is one of the, the rare countries in Europe that really contributes 2% uh, of its uh, GDP in terms of expenditure for defense matters. 
the cooperation between the lo France and the UK, for example, uh, and, and the, the United States in NATO is, is becomes stronger and stronger. So we, you have an additional layer here of cooperation uh, that you could have. Also, that um, uh, argues uh, in favor of having uh, a kind of uh, multi um, multi-layer agreement with the UK depending on the topic. Uh, and so, again, you have asked me a question about cost, about money, and my answer is more a qualitative answer. Now, what I say might not be the end result. I might be completely wrong in, in my analysis. But I hope that uh, on both sides we will pick up on what is the key issues instead of focusing on numbers. Okay. So I understand you to be saying that... Um perhaps the best deal on both sides might be something close to the Swiss model in the sense that, as you say, Switzerland has about 120 bilateral agreements. Uh, you're suggesting that the outcome of Brexit might be something which is specific to the UK case and based on a series of agreements across different sectors. This might include services as well as, as trade. Um, but as you said in your presentation, the remaining issue is then questions of free movement or indeed uh, of continuing adjudication by the European Court of Justice. Are those two things red lines? They are essential. Well, on the, on the free movement of people, I mentioned it briefly uh, we had an issue, the EU had an issue with Switzerland, uh, and a solution was found uh, which gives a kind of preference to residents yes. uh, before you advertising a job uh, outside Switzerland. And by doing that, the Swiss were happy in the sense they said, okay, this... Uh, answers the negative referendum that we had in our country, and the EU said, well, okay, we can live with the fact that for a couple of months the, the jobs are only advertised in Switzerland, but afterwards you open. This is a very simple and good example how you can solve problems. If you go into the negotiation and saying this is a must, no budging, no... In fact, let me also add, British settlement... Uh, I encourage all of you who are students in this field to read what concessions the European Union had made to the UK in the British settlement. By the way, there was a clause that said, and I, I tell you, it was hard to swallow, um, but we did it in the spirit, okay, if that helps the British get a yes, let's do it that you would get full social benefits as an, uh, someone from, uh, uh, even as, uh, as an EU citizen. You would get full British benefits only after three years. Mm. Only after three years. Quite something. And, and so, again, there's, there's ways and means to handle these issues. And then the Court of Justice... Uh, in the EEA case, there's an EEA court, other good exercise for the students. Sorry, you get a lot of work here tonight. Um, very interesting. The EEA court 
it has been publicized a little bit. The, the EA court is also in Luxembourg. I, I know the, the, the judge well. In fact, the judge is Swiss. Although the Swiss are not part of the EEA, but the, the judge is Swiss. <laughs> One judge is Swiss, the president is Swiss. And there's representatives of the EEA countries and representatives of the EU. And some cases go to that EEA court. This is a very specific court. Well, one could imagine something similar. We have a special chamber of the European Court of Justice. I'm just inventing a solution here. That would have a special chamber that deals with EU, uh, EU and UK citizen situations, for example, for the past or for the future. So where there's a will, there's a way. Okay, that's very helpful. Thank you. So more questions, uh, please. Could we take the... Uh, gentleman almost at the back here. Hi. Um, sorry. It's on. Hi. My name is Linjin, and I'm a student here at LSE studying economics. Um, so my question is, when is your um, argument that we have to de-dramatize the context, the situation, negotiations, with the public distrust in politicians and the media in general, um, how can we de-dramatize a population already sort of obsessed with, it, with this idea that we can break away and we can have this great deal that will work in our, in our favor? Um, and how can we kind of convince them of the reality that, hey, like divorce is hard. We can't make all these campaign pledges. We can't keep all these campaign pledges that we made. Um, and, yeah, so like how can we sort of communicate that reality? Okay, good, thank you. Other questions? Uh, the lady at the very front, please. It's coming on this. Oh, okay. Thank you. I'm Crystal Smart, studying law at LSE. Um, you've touched on the various models, um, Swiss, Norwegian, Canadian, um, possible Turkish model, and also the default WTO. You've also made mention of the importance of balancing uh, both a need for compliancy um, and also um, the need to respect democracy. In spite of those very important um, things you've highlighted, there, it would be fair to say that there would be some financial ramifications for the UK um, in light of the fact that you know, there is a, a divorce bill, um, in light of the fact that many legal entities are migrating to different um, EU states. What strategies could you then advance for the UK, strategies which would allow us to, um, to avoid or to, in fact, mitigate some of the financial ramifications? Okay. Beyond, beyond um, forming a subsidiary. Thank you very much. Uh, other questions? Can we take the gentleman in the very centre, please? Yeah, if you could pass the microphone along any time tonight, that would be fine. <laughs> uh, good evening, Minister. Um, I just want to say that um, initially, um, when the, moving to, from the European community into the um, European Union, the initial goal was military peace within the EU. 
and it's safe to say that's job done. That was the initial mission statement. Military peace was achieved. So I'm not hearing much on the discussion, um, many suggestions on actually starting a new architecture that would transfigure the EU, that maybe um, would be reciprocally beneficial to both parties in terms of the social economic situations that are also in the EU at the moment, as well as a lot of the economic situations that we're having over here, that both would leave and move into that new architecture and then transfigure the EU in terms of economically, socially, and perhaps even politically that would deal with things like the democratic deficit. Those kind of suggestions aren't being made because your five that you mentioned are all like other nations. They're things based on other nations. But isn't, shouldn't that be more the focus, moving into that new um, system construction as the Americans had to discuss in their time when they went to found their nation? There's not many discussions of creatively destroying the current state and creating a new kind of architecture that all could be in. Okay. Thank you. And perhaps just uh, the last question, the gentleman just next to you here, please. Good evening. My name is El Chandra and I work in IT consultancy. Um, since we are being creative and uh, you talk about five scenarios, what about the sixth scenario uh, that would be cancelling Brexit altogether? Either by a change in the, in the in the in the public attitude, or by a blocking uh, uh, of the UK Parliament. How do, how do you see the European Union accepting that scenario, and uh, how could it work in in practical terms? Okay, it seems to be a, a nice, uh, more political theme in this uh, second round of uh, questions. Essentially. Um, you, the first question was about uh, your rights to argue to de-dramatize the, uh, the discussion over Brexit, but how could we do that in a um, population that has uh, grown up on anti-Brussels and what some would regard as populist campaigns? Yes. Uh, this, um, uh, in fact... Uh, I'm very glad that over the last months I, I've used this quite a lot, this word, de-dramatize, because I really think this is the only way out. If we do not manage to de-dramatize the discussion, I'm afraid we cannot find a solution. Uh, so this is a dramatic statement. Um, and I'm serious. Uh, and uh, by bringing in uh, kind of factual matters, uh, trying to, to avoid uh, what I call megaphone diplomacy uh, on both sides, uh, is, the, in my opinion, certainly the best way out. It's maybe not the only one, but that's the one that I see and that's why um, I, I spend a lot of time speaking about possible solutions. Because do you hear anybody talk about solutions? I think that's the question that we, we should all ask ourselves. We spend so much energy. I mean, we, all of us, students, professors, uh, politicians, researchers, and uh, out of 100 articles of, that we read in the media, uh, 99 are devoted to the fact that there is a stalemate and that there are bitter consequences 
very few articles about solutions. So that was my intent today, that you would have one guy standing there not telling you it's impossible, it's going to be a nightmare, it's not going to work, it's going to be a disaster, but someone telling you there are tools if we want to look into them and, and use it. And uh, it's not uh, my uh, role and certainly would be completely misplaced for me to give any uh, advice to, to any politician of another country uh, than my own. But uh, I think uh, we, we need a kind of um, standstill uh, in the vocabulary, standstill in, uh, in the declarations, and just get down to work and ask uh, people, diplomats and specialists of both sides just to sit together and work on solutions and then come back with possible solutions. And we discuss possibilities instead of being uh, on, on a high horse. Um, Someone, uh, I think the lady in front here, asked me uh, how to mitigate. Yes. To, to, yeah, to mitigate the consequences. Yes. Again, it's about finding solutions. Now, if if you think, if one thinks that you can get out of this with uh, a better result for both sides. We dream. We dream. So what we must do is damage mitigation. Unless, and someone said, use that word, I think it's the gentleman who asked the first question up there. Obviously, if we're smart and we foster international trade, then in the medium and long run, we're all going to be winners. But in the short term, we're all going to lose a little bit because when you're united, you're stronger. When you divide, you're weaker. And cancelling Brexit, well, I think I really, uh, it's, it's good that you asked the question uh, up there in, on the balcony. You see, this analysis, I think, hurts more than it helps. That's why I haven't even mentioned that neither as a first or sixth solution. Because especially if it were to come from a politician, which I'm bound to be in this job, it, it would look like as if once again the politicians are not listening to the citizens. The citizens have decided what they have decided. Now it's the task of politicians to solve it and offer them proposals. But the, the, the answer cannot be, I'm sorry, you were wrong. That cannot be a solution. That cannot be a solution. That's why, uh, at, certainly for, for my part, I, I would never uh, make such a proposal because I think it really defies democracies. You might hate the result uh, of the referendum, but you have to live with it. But if the future British government was to say before the two-year period is finished... Uh, we want to tear up the, uh, the Article 50 uh, request, uh, you would say the European Union would, uh, would be pleased and say thank you very much. Well, I do not really anticipate that to happen. <laughs> yes. One wonders who the Prime Minister or the Chancellor of the Exchequer would be, <laughs> even next week. Um, okay. Uh, 
I think we might have time for one last uh, question, and it's the gentleman in the very centre here. Can you just wait for the microphone? Thank you very much. Stefan is my name, and I'm a finance graduate. Uh, my question would be, let's say, let's suppose that uh, f the financial sector migrates more to the European financial centers, and uh, it will strengthen them a little, I suppose. Also, the euro will be strengthened. How could this interfere with the fact that ECB tries to uh, reverse its expansionary monetary policy? I'm not sure I understood the question. Uh, the link between the ECB policy and, and the Brexit? Uh, yes, essentially he's saying that uh, what of the scenario in, in which uh, business does transfer from London to other European centres and the possible impact on the ECB policy of that business being transferred? How does it interfere with the fact that ECB wants to exit the expansionary mm -hmm. monitor, monetary policy. Okay. Yeah, thank you. Um, now I'm going to say something that you're probably not going to like. But I have to say it because it is factually right. Brexit is in this country maybe not the number one topic, but amongst the major topics, and it will have a major influence on your future in this country. Unfortunately, or just quite logically, Brexit in most European countries is certainly not in the top five, or maybe not even in the top, top ten subjects. For quite a few reasons, uh, some logical ones, some obvious ones. If you're sitting uh, in the eastern border of Germany, you have nothing to do with the UK, and uh, you're more uh, worried about the unemployment rate in that area of Germany that's very high. Same goes for Greece or other countries. And this is also quite a challenge because... Uh, we are devoting now a lot of energy inside the European Union at civil servant level, politicians level, to deal with this issue. But uh, it's not a topic on the continent, if I may put it that way, that really gets a lot of attention anymore. It got some, as uh, news sometimes get on the next day uh, of the referendum, yes, and then for t quite some time. And, and so... That can help us de-dramatize in a certain way, certainly on the European side. Uh, but uh, I think that the, the, this side uh, of the channel must realize that um, the span of attention that the, the, the topic is getting will diminish uh, over time. Now, your question was with the ECB policy. Obviously, that's why it made me think of what I just said. Uh, yes, there, there's a little bit of impact into the economy, but then again, compared to what one percentage growth makes in terms of more revenues for governments, in terms of less unemployment in Europe, this is gigantically more than this. And so the ECB policy uh, uh, is observing what? Where is the inflation rate in the Eurozone? 
Will I get closer? Am I getting closer to 2% uh, price uh, increase? That is my aim, point number one. Point number two, uh, is the growth in Europe sustainable? And if the answers to these two questions are uh, positive, uh, they will uh, adjust uh, their uh, quantitative easing policy and uh, their interest rate policy. So, um, in a nutshell, I could have answered very easily uh, and simply saying uh, it's going to have very little impact on the ECB, but would have been a little bit short. Okay, thank you. <laughs> um, your comments reminded me that after the June the 23rd uh, referendum in the UK, uh, much of the media coverage in Britain uh, focused on the question of whether the European Union could survive without us. Um, your, your comments now seem to be uh, helping us to be uncharacteristically humble. Uh, we'll try to learn that lesson. Thank you. Okay. Uh, so to remind you, uh, there are future lectures and uh, discussions organised under the LSE programme for uh, Brexit. Uh, look on the web pages, the European Institutes, the in uh, Institute for Public Affairs. Uh, but please, before we finish, can you join me in uh, thanking our speaker this evening, Ray Walker. <laughs>